This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. We're hearing lots of stories these days about veteran teachers leaving the profession. In many ways, it's, it's tied into broader trends about people feeling burned out or unsupported at work in these challenging times of pandemic and uncertainty. But education seems particularly hard hit by a sense of demoralization. To better understand this issue... I'm handing the microphone off this week to an educator who is especially concerned about this trend. The episode you're about to hear is by Jennifer U. Brannon, an instructional coach at El Monte Union High School District in California. Regular listeners may remember her from an episode we did a few weeks ago where she read her essay about how educators can respond to this time of trauma. This week, she goes deeper with an emotional interview she did with a longtime colleague. Okay, I'll leave the rest to Jennifer U. Brannon. Here we go. It's the start of a new school year, and I'm looking around at our district-wide rally at the sea of teachers wearing their staff shirts, wondering when they can get on campus so they can set up their rooms, and I couldn't help think, who's missing? Who is not here? Who left last year or quietly made their exit after the first year of the pandemic? It's my job to think about teachers. I'm an instructional coach who believes that empowered, happy teachers are what's best for students, parents, schools, and society as a whole. So I want to know why players, and often our best players, are leaving the game. I thought about Diana, an English teacher I've known and respected for years. She's not starting her 19th year in my district or any other district. She has walked away from teaching altogether. And I wanted to talk to her about why. This is our conversation. Hey, Diana. Thank you so much for meeting with me and talking with me. Yeah, I'm glad to, I'm glad to be here talking to you. So I first want to talk a little bit about um, our relationship, who you are, you know, our context. So I'm an instructional coach at a different high school, um, but we were both English teachers together in the same district. And I feel like every time I saw you or had conversations with you, you know, when we had district-wide meetings, there was this sense of like respect, like game recognizes game, right? Mm -hmm. I am finishing my 16th year and I believe you're my senior by two years, 18 years. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, your journey as an educator. Like what made you go into education? You know, tell me a little bit about the context in which you teach. Okay. Um, I was one of those hopeless uh, nerds in a sense where if you asked me when I was six, what I was going to be, I was, I, I was hell bent on saying teacher, just never wavered. So the only thing that changed over the years was if I was in the second grade, I, I was going to teach second grade. And then third grade, I was going to teach third grade all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I thought, well, maybe when I get to college, I want to teach college. And I was like, no, I want to get back to high school. And so I was 
if if you were going to bet on any one person making it to retirement, so to speak, like finishing the race, it would have been me. <laughs> and so it's shocking to even myself that I woke up one day this year and said, no, I have to, I have to um, do better for myself. And I had to realize that, um, in, you know, that I was in a bad relationship and, um, and I had to leave. But what brought me to teaching was just this passion for um, educating. I, I don't even think, I don't even think it was English teaching English or, or language development that, that brought me into the field. It was just a passion for teaching. So, um, you know, cause I, 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 I kind of wavered about what even subject, history, English, music. I was a musician. I am a musician. And so I was just, it was just a matter of what am I going to teach? Just want to say that, yeah, I totally resonate with that kind of passion. And and I think there are a lot of different pathways into teaching. And that's something I actually want to explore, you know, in mm-hmm. writing in a different series of stories where there are those like you who from the very beginning were these kind of purists, right? Of like, mm-hmm. they knew they were going to be teachers at a really young age and they, it's that passion. And we often talk about teachers in this way that it's a calling, it's an identity, it's a passion. Um, and so I, so but that's one of the reasons why it was so heartbreaking when I watched the video of your speech uh, to the board of our district kind of talking about why you were leaving. So could you talk a little bit about the lead up to what made you write that speech? What was this past year and a half like for you? Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't even say it's the year and a half. I wouldn't even say it was, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint um, what exactly is a breaking point. Um, but there were many times pre-pandemic um, that I thought, this could be my last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just out of sheer stick to itness and um, uh, refusal to let it um, take me down, in a sense, the job itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, because I, like I said, I I was going to do this my whole life, you know. Um, so the reality is, <laughs> and I'm a little emotional still, like, yeah. Because, well, I actually was nervous talking to you today because I feel like, um, you know, when you make a choice to protect yourself, um, I've just been, you know, I, you have to like, you have to kind of go cold turkey. And so it's, I've been spending the past six to eight weeks just trying not to think about this profession. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is heartbreak. And um, I'll try to get it together. <laughs> you know, Hold on, let me just take a deep breath. Because, yeah. I mean, it's like leaving a relationship that yes. you love this person, but you realize, like, um, life's too short to feel this beat up. Yeah. and I, So you have to make a choice, you know. Yeah, take, take your time, take a breath. And I, I want to point out something that you said in your, in your speech. You do talk about it as a slow boil. Mm-hmm. Right. There was um, it has been kind of a long time coming. Yeah. And to to quote you, uh, you say it's been a slow boil, but the lid has officially been blown off the pot. I've come to the realization, like so many <laughs> others, that this daily exhaustion is not sustainable. 
Yeah, and I think um, I think there's the sick part is that this seems to be um, common knowledge in society that um, it is a marathon, right? Job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody who says, oh, it must be nice to have two months off in the summer. Uh, no, um, because you spend 10 months working um, one and a half to two full-time jobs. So by the time you get there, you're just spent, you know, and then there's all this pressure to make the most and really live a life in the summer. And you, you're spending two to three weeks just um, detoxing, right? You're just, it's, it's, it's not a sustainable um, existence. And anybody who's, I mean, imagine having to work overtime. I, this is what a lot of people would get. Imagine having to work overtime every single week of your job. Um, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not something that you can do for very long. You're going to need some respite. And I just feel like we all seem to accept it as part of the job, quote unquote. You know, it's the price us teachers pay for getting to work in a field that we're passionate about as though, you know, um, uh, as though we should be be so lucky. Um, Absolutely. And I think the way we talk about teachers and the discourse around educators is is toxic because we we often use this um, identity and calling and vocation around teaching to Mm -hmm. justify a lot of unpaid work. Right. So yeah. that oh yeah, you don't get you don't have to be paid for everything that you do because you love it so much, because it's a calling, yeah. because yeah. it's an identity. We would yeah. never say to accountants, right? Like right. Oh, you're you love numbers all the time, but yeah. you love it. It's a calling yeah. your identity. We would yeah. never say that to other professionals. No, we do, and we do encourage people to take it on as an identity. That's a good point because um more often than not, I mean, I've been guilty of this and, and there wasn't, a, there was a shift midway through my career where I said, no, I'm going to stop using that language, you know, versus, you know, it's the, I teach versus I am a teacher. And so when you couch it as you are this, suddenly um, you're willing to, you know, um, be buried in yeah. it, you know, you're willing to, or they expect you to be willing to be buried in it. And I don't know how many times I've heard someone go, oh, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. Yes. You know, and meanwhile, you're getting to the weekend with 5% in your battery yes. and you have no energy for your family, for your friends, for your hobbies. I mean, I have so many hobbies that just go to the wayside those 10 months of the year. And then it's all, you know, I, oh, that was hilarious that I thought I was going to teach English language arts because of my love of literature and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then, <laughs> but then I spend, you know, I'm, I'm basically reading essays for 10 months straight, you know, I'm reading um, formal writing, I'm reading, I mean, it's never ending. And so well, I'm, and I'm reading beginner writing, you know, and, it's like, there's and a layer of that. Yes, I do think that there is a kind of misconception in the broader culture of like, oh, you're an English teacher, mm-hmm. you get just like read books, it's like going to a book club all the time, mm-hmm. you can cool books and discuss books with students. Now, right. I will say that I think, Yes, that's what English classes should be. Um, But the reality is the day-to-day kind of non-teaching aspect of teaching gets overwhelming, right? All the bureaucracy and the paperwork and all the other dynamics that fill up your day. Um, But I want to go back to this idea of like um, teaching 
as identity and the way we talk about it. And I want to point out something else that that you wrote in your speech and that you said that it's it's because you're a good teacher, right? That you feel like you cannot realize or execute the ideals that brought you to education. And I I think another layer of this is that you know, yes, teachers are told you get to be so lucky, you get to do this thing that is morally rewarding and gratifying, and therefore you do extra work because of that. Mm-hmm. And then if you made the decision to put some healthy boundaries and have more of a work-life balance, you're often labeled as a bad teacher. If you only did what was in your contractual day, then those teachers are talked about, well, they just don't care about the Must be nice, right? Yeah. Yeah, Must be nice to just skip home without a a wheelie backpack that is too heavy to carry, (laughs) you know? Yes. um, and I just remember the guilt that I would feel yeah. if I took home, you know, a giant crate of grading and yeah. I didn't touch it on the weekend, right? Because, right. And, and this is pre-kids for me, you know, I would take right. home crates, crates of grading and I would grade right. all weekend. I, I, that's that's unfathomable for me right now as a mother of two young, two little well, ones. Honestly, you know? I, I, I do not have kids and I do not know how people with kids um, stay very long into teaching. Uh, because it's, you really do have to, okay. I'm not trying to say that, um, uh, teachers with kids are not the most effective they can be or, or whatever, but, um, man, it's, it's very hard to balance. I would imagine, um, uh, because I can barely, I could barely balance it, balance it with just me, myself and my dog story about, you know, so and my significant other, I mean, it is, um, it is but I think there's a conditioning that goes into it. I mean, going back to what you said is like, I would, I would bring home this, this, you know, pound of papers, uh, several pounds of papers. I mean, I used to beat myself up for years. I, if only I became better at time management and if only I could draw from firmer line between work and home, you know, I, I blamed myself for the fact that I was left with this low battery at the end of every week when actuality I was working um, unpaid overtime every single night and on the weekends. And that's the way the job is designed. And I have found that it's impossible to work to contract without either compromising how effective I am in the classroom personally. Um, I know some people are able to do it. I could I could not. Um, or compromising my personal life. And and more often than not, uh, it was the latter. And and for that reason, a lot would have to change for me and to I- even and I think to meet the ideal of what is projected as being a quote unquote good teacher, you have to operate at the extremes of your capacity all the time. Yeah. And that is just not sustainable. Firing on all cylinders. And see, that's the other thing. Um, I, I've had friends who, you know, I had a friend in particular I'm thinking of who um, he worked in television and post-production and then he, he took on a class um he took on a class just in like one college class a night, um, not a night, but um, a semester. And he, he told me, Oh my God, I, I don't even understand how you can do that full time because, and, and, and the reality is we are putting on five shows, you know, five hourly shows a day. Um, there are different shows every day, right? We're, we're, we're a performance art in a sense. If we want to engage our students uh, we have to be good at performance art. That's what people don't give us enough credit for. You know, I'm not, 
I'm not talking about the, I'm not just passing out papers and going, okay, it's due at the end of the period, right? They're out there. We know that. But at the, but the people that go into teaching who are truly motivated by getting results, getting, you know, seeing that the educational, you know, slope go up by the end of the year, you know, with these students, um, it, it takes so much energy and you're, you know, on top of that, you're, you're doing classroom management for an audience that not all of them want to be there, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might have some, um, behavioral issues. You have to be on top of your game. I, I would say you could be an amazing educator. And if you don't have, um, if you're not peak performance in your classroom management, this job will eat you up. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, you know, you have to be, you have to be good on so many levels and that's what they, that's what, that's where a lot of people get really exhausted because yeah. you you are again firing at all cylinders. I mean, you have to and you have to think on your feet. I mean, the best teachers among us are the ones that you know, not everything is scripted, right? I mean, not, things are not scripted to my They're knowledge. responsive. The best teachers right. are responsive. Yeah. And yeah, and so it's like, okay, teachable moment. Okay, this these right. these students are that's why the schools, uh, my mom worked at a school where they wanted everybody to be on the same page at the same time with the same line. And it's laughable because it's, it's, that's not how humans learn. Right. So um, I want to touch on, on that a little bit, because that really speaks to what um, Dolores Santoro talks about in her book, Demoralize. Demoralization happens when educators face persistent challenges to their professional values. And if one of your professional values is that, you know, we need to be responsive to the way students actually learn and you right. are being forced in situations where um, you are being asked to execute a curriculum you don't believe in or be right. locked with a system you don't think will actually be effective. Um, right. So what or are you're some- not allowed to deviate? You know, even okay. even though you are a highly trained professional and you have your best judgment and years of experience to guide you, but no, you're supposed to suppress those and just kind of be a little marching soldier. And and that's not. I mean, we are not programs in which you could just open up, pour the knowledge. And I mean, long 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 gone are those days. My initial chat with Diana made me think about working people outside of education and how they might be hearing this conversation between us. There has been a lot of recent talk about quiet quitting, this term that it's being defined as performing only the jobs assigned to an employee by the employer and not going above and beyond the job description. And I have to say, I am here for it. I am not advocating for mediocrity in education. I'm saying I'm rooting for a new generation of teachers who are asking schools and school systems to be more transparent about teacher expectations and providing the conditions needed to meet those expectations. So I wanted to go back and talk to Diana again so we could lay out a clearer picture for the non-educator about the realities of the work. We'll get to my second conversation with Diana right after this. What do UCLA, Old Dominion University, University of Memphis, and Miami-Dade College all have in common. Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS, then archive their student data. Traditional LMS migration options, like manually migrating courses one at a time, 
or using bulk migration tools that leave the content fragmented and incomplete, are simply outdated. And so too is archiving student data on an expensive legacy LMS or in unreadable cold storage. Introducing System Migration and Data Archiving by K16 Solutions. System Migration is an automated solution that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools. And with data archiving, administrators can archive student data on K16's platform at a fraction of the price and access that data quickly and easily at any time in their new LMS. Finally, an LMS migration and archiving solution that's kept pace with the rest of technology. To learn more about K16 Solutions products and services, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. I want to go back to something you said because you compared it to a relationship, like a romantic relationship in which one side is giving and the other side is taking. And I first want to make sure that everybody's clear that the other side is not students, right? Oh, no. No, I think that's the assumption too. No, it's not. It's It's not. not. It's the system. And and, and I will say that um, this system kind of works, it, it lays the foundation um, for this kind of toxic relationship really early on. Mm-hmm. When I think about the the way new teachers are spoken to um, or, and spoken about, mm-hmm. and I a lot of it starts very young, right? It starts as soon as you get there. Um, new teachers are told like, sign up for everything, go mm-hmm. to a football game and, and establishing like, this is the norm that you have to do and be right. all of these things. And right. it is, false dichotomy. It's a hazing. It's a hazing. I mean, these are the teachers that are, um, you know, within your, at least in California, um, California has these very high bar and, you know, um, you have to get your four-year degree and what you want to, you know, teach in. And then you have to get your year, year and a half of uh, credentialing work done. And then you have to clear that. You have to get a clear credential. So that's your, that's your, um, probationary or preliminary, and then you have to do more, you know, at least in Southern California where we are, I can only speak to that. You had to clear your credential, basically take the credential program all over again. I mean, when I went through the program, it was a padfolio thick with um, like five inches thick of case studies that I had to do on students, seat time that I had to put in after work, um, you know, for, for, um, um, workshops and stuff like that. I mean, that's just to clear it. So within your first year or two, you're expected to do it all over again. And um, there was a um, there was a t- statistic that said um, 85% of teachers who quit in their first three years cited the fact that it, it felt like a hazing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then when you, when you pile on too, you have admin coming to you and, you know, everybody thinks tenure, you know, is so evil. Well, um, that just means that you can't be fired without due cause. You know, in the first two years, what I think a lot of people don't realize is first two years, a teacher can um, be let go and be considered a non-rehire, right, um, for for uh, any, anything, mm-hmm. literally no explanation needed. Um, you didn't say hi back to the principal in the hallway or something. You're you're seen as um, you're seen as a, not a yes man or woman, right? You're you're seen as uh, you know when you were asked to be the ASB advisor, you said no, no, you know, mm-hmm. even though that would have taken um, hours. 
hours per week of dedication. Um, You know, so, so no, I mean, that's what you're saying. It's a conditioning early on. Is it a wonder that 44% of Mm -hmm. teachers aren't getting past year five? Right. And that is incredibly disappointing. Incredibly, because you, you know, who's leaving are the people who are the, who, who are the most gung ho, yes. you know, they're the people who are, who are like me, who were, uh, it's in their bones. Right. And, so, and what you said is right on, you said, no job should feel like an endurance race. There's mm-hmm. no longevity in that. And it is impossible for people to work at the very outer edges of their capacity all the time. Right. I mean, you, I, I used to, I used to beat myself up for years. Um, I used to beat myself up for years. Um, if only I became better at time management and if only I could draw a firmer line between work and home. I mean, I blame myself for the fact that I was left with this depleted battery every week when in actuality I was working. Um, I think this this came to the, my breaking point, right? Th- this realization that I was working one and a half to two full-time jobs disguised as one. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the job is designed, I found that it's impossible for me personally to work to contract without either compromising how effective I was in the classroom or compromising my personal life. And it was co- uh, a constant teeter-totter, you know, me picking and choosing which one was going to get um, short shrift, right? Mm-hmm. So for that reason, Um, I had to just decide I cannot change, you know, back to this toxic relationship sort of mentality. I cannot change. um, I cannot change the other person, right? I cannot change them. I love them deeply. Um, But I do not like how they make me feel. Mm. Right. And I, and I, the only control that I have in that is my presence, right? I'm voting for myself at the end of the day, you know, I have to advocate for myself and my personal well-being. And that's why I said, that's why I can be emotional right now. just even talking about leaving, um, unspeakably, I couldn't even fathom that. And yet I know down to my very core that it was the right decision. At no point have I woken up between my last day at work. Um, and now a couple months later and gone, Oh, what, what have I done? No, it's just, it's, you just know, you know, your, 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 um, heart and, um, mind knows when it's been given a, a life raft. Right. And it's pathetic that I have to say that because, um, we're breaking, right. Wow. We're breaking our teachers. Thank you. And, and the children will suffer. Thank you so much for sharing. And I, for me, it gives me a lot to reflect on as an instructional coach, as, and I think there has been a shift in my thinking. Um, So much of my job, especially within the last two and a half years has been, you know, really surfacing emotions and creating some space for teachers to talk about these very issues of burnout and demoralization. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to a point where I don't want to help teachers cope anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of it. I'm going to. That's not the answer, right? It's not. And I really want to build communities of resistance and education. I mm-hmm. want us to demand the things that we need to do the job. Right. And I want to help create a system where that there is longevity and longevity with joy. And right. that longevity with joy becomes the norm. Right. And 
you know, I affirm your decision and, and I want you um, to be happy in your profession. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, it, I, what would yeah. that for educators to, to have that kind of longevity with joy? What do you think needs to change about the system? Um, a lot. I do have some ideas about that, but a lot. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I hate to sound like a pessimist. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Um, I do think that um, if everybody worked a contract um, this day, every bit, every teacher across the country worked a contract, the system would collapse, absolutely collapse. So um, what are we doing to set them up for failure? Uh, we are packing classes, right? Um, I don't think, my first year of teaching, I was very fortunate and I really honestly attribute it to um, the fact that I got as far as I did was that there was a state, uh, there was a state, I don't, was it a law or a, an, you initiative, know, to have an initiative that said, okay, 20 to one max for freshman yes. classes. Um, okay. So my, my first schedule, my first year teaching, um, thankfully was, uh, three freshman classes, 20 to one, um, in any other circumstances, but I would have had 60 kids by, um, I don't know, one and a half periods in. Okay, so I had 60 kids, um, you know, after three hours, the, the, the grading that, you know, the grading, the one-on-one um, -on -one that I was able to um, provide. The, um, um, and, and, and now my second two, my last two classes of the day, 40 to one sophomores. Mm -hmm. Boy, was that a night and day difference. And, and it was very painfully obvious to me what I could and could not do um, in the 40 to one. You, you know what I'm saying? It was like, wow, I'm not able to be as ineffective as a teacher as, I, as, I, as I'd like to be. Um, and that didn't last very long. I, I don't think that initiative stuck around too long because um, it, it, it required a lot of hiring yes. you know, of new teachers. And isn't that interesting that teachers have been asked for years, there are decades and decades of research that in which teachers responded to polls and surveys, what do you want? What would mm -hmm. it take? And I feel like we're all flipping out right now. Mm -hmm. Teeth leaving. What are we going to do? What's it going to take? We have been saying it for years. We need smaller class sizes. Right. We need better support systems, more instructional aids, more support staff like mental health professionals support and staff. counselors. Key. Um, so I think that is definitely part of it. And I think conversations like this also address the other uh, tier or aspect of change that needs to happen is we need to start telling the truth about mm -hmm. what is happening in the classroom, what's happening in schools, and to recognize that the rhetoric and the narratives around teachings are harmful. We need to start speaking differently about teachers, mm -hmm. about what's happening in our schools, and acknowledge that this kind of um, you know, keep going, keep doing all this unpaid work, sacrifice yourself because it's for the kids. That needs to stop. And we right. need to respect teachers as professionals. Right. I mean, if you consider what we're expected to do in the day, um, it's abusive to go over, um, you know, gosh, uh, some people would be grateful for 30 to one. It's, 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 it, even that is a night and day difference. You know, um, if you're considered, some people have two, 250 kids in their roster a day. If good teaching requires us to differentiate instruction, encourage every student to meaningfully, orally participate every day, 
um, you know, this is a necessary cap and this is, this would immediately, um, you know, but it speaks to what do we really value in society? We have to ask ourselves as a society, are we, are we looking for a, um, um, these students to be well-educated or are we looking for them to be housed? And honestly, I think there's a lot of people who are looking around and going in a, um, you know, pandemic world, what, what's the value system right here? And that is one more thing that I, I failed to mention earlier, but I mean, this is a realization that we're hearing the rhetoric in society is very much like get back in there. I need my student. I need my, 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 I need my kid to go somewhere during the day. And so we're over here, you know, trying to, you know, educate. And I mean, I have, I have, uh, I have friends in, in, in districts with 50 students in a lab class mm-hmm. and that's acceptable, yes. you know, and, and, you know, there was massive layoffs years ago in um, LA Unified and, and the reward for that, for, for the teachers, um, buckling down and doing again more with less and having their classes packed to the brim was um, you guys did such a great job. We're just going to stay the course with that. Not new hires, right? Yes. Um, we're just going to, oh, yeah, you really did it. But, uh, you know, really, there needs to be a reckoning, a reckoning, um, because if we all just if we all just demand it better for ourselves um, simultaneously, I mean that's the key. But it's so hard. I've had the union, you know, hey, let's log our hours. Let's log our hours to you know so we can have better bargaining at the table, so they could really understand what we go through every week, every day. I logged what I did in a day. I cried. I went to sleep. I never did that again. I really believe that. And and that, again, that deals, that butts up against the politics around unions and this perception of unions, because we do recognize that in any job field, public or private, Mm -hmm. there are probably uh, professionals who don't live up to the professional expectations. Standards. Mm -hmm. And so let's just be clear. We recognize that it happens. There's bad in every field. Absolutely. So, but. I think for me as a coach, you know, it's not productive. It's not useful for me to think about like, okay, well, that I want to know why. Why is that teacher not meeting the expectations? Mm-hmm. What kind of support are we actually providing for that mm-hmm. employee to meet those expectations? But I think there's this, I think probably because it's a public service, right? That um this kind of every public servant you do more with less. If we took that approach about everything you know, politicians are also public servants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like saying to them, like, we hold you to the very, very highest standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want you to be babysitter and excellent differentiate, you know? So I think a lot of it is that as public servants, this perception has continued. And I think also it is a very um, feminized industry, right? So there are there's more diversity at the the secondary level of education, but a lot of primary elementary school it's it's a lot of women, right? And yes. I think that there historically there is we we have <laughs> a track record as a country of not acknowledging women's work and right. not women's work. So I definitely think well, that- it's not a coincidence that as more men joined the field that the that the pay started going up and and only finally mm-hmm. then I mean it, to this day. We still have a. We are still enjoying. I say that sarcastically. A twenty percent pay cut 
mm-hmm. for the honor of being a teacher. Um, when you compare it to uh, um, other professions with equal schooling, equal um, qualifications that are necessary, um, I it, this is why it's, you're hard pressed to find a chemistry teacher. I mean, if you want to teach chemistry, oh boy, do you have pick of the litter, right? They're, they're vying for you. Everybody's just, you know, um, because you know, why would you be a chemistry teacher when you're taking a massive pay cut? And then on top of that, you're looking at your workload, like, when does it stop? So I just want to say thank you again for talking to me, Diana. And I think this conversation is just like revelatory for me and is really shaping how I talk to teachers, the kind of conversations we have, and how I want to fight to help create a system where there's longevity with joy for teachers. So thank you so much. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. We're always looking for new ways to explore challenges and innovations in education. If you have ideas or feedback, feel free to email us at tips at edsurge.com or hit me directly at jeff at edsurge.com. A quick note of correction. In the interview, Jennifer mentioned the book Demoralized, but she misstated the author's first name. The book was written by Doris Santoro. Jennifer wanted me to stress her regret at flubbing that name there. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Music is by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week when we will have the finale of our Second Acts podcast series following the educational journeys of three returning adult college students. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening.